This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. All right, the scripture reading today is from Psalm 12. If you would rise for the scripture. (laughs) Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us, who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, Emmaus. It's fun to see Sarah's familiar face this morning. Come back to Denver. No, I'm just <laughs> uh, it does make me think. It's it's uh, whenever that I go back to Omaha and worship with some of my close friends from Omaha, whether people are visiting who are away, whether it's people that I just haven't seen in a while. Uh, it, it's just a joy uh, to worship with the family, um, and, and it makes me when we, when I get to worship with someone who I haven't been able to worship and uh, and consider the word in a long time. It makes me think of eternity. Uh, like we, we will gather with everyone who we love, who we ever loved, who we ever knew, uh, who we ever worshipped with, whoever uh, had a positive effect on our life via the gospel, and we'll see God face to face, and we'll worship with everyone together uh, for all eternity. So it's just a little taste of that when we get some friends and family that we haven't seen in a while, and we get to worship together. So I'm thankful for that. Um, but let's pray and. Uh, We'll jump into to Psalm 12 and, and hopefully learn uh, a little more about the God that we worship uh, so that we can have more joy, we can have more peace, uh, we can see more of the beauty of the gospel. So uh, let's start with some prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have promised to, to gather your people to yourself. Thank, thank you that you have told us that you will not lose one, uh, but you will raise us up on the last day. Lord, uh, thank you for this psalm. Thank you for uh, just music and, and poetry and, and just ways you, you work in the world and ways you communicate to us that are meant to stir our emotions, that are meant to draw our affections towards you. Um, man, you could have just sent down a, a user's manual for life, and yet you've, you've given us so much more than that. You've given us narrative. You've given us poetry. You've given us proverbs. You've uh, so many so many ways and unique ways you communicate yourself to us, Lord. So I, I just thank you for that, and I thank you that we can spend the summer considering the Psalms and, and seeing Christ and seeing your Son and, and, the, and how you communicate in this way, Lord. Pray that you would um, open our eyes and just encourage us this morning as we, as we question whose words do we trust, Lord. We, want, we do want to trust your word and, and ultimately your Son. So in your name I pray, amen. So this morning in uh, 
Psalm 12, we see sort of like a pattern that we see in, in a lot of Psalms. It starts out with this very clear statement of need. He says, save, O Lord. Save, O Lord. That's, that's just how he starts the Psalm. And then by the time we get to verse seven and eight, he speaks with a lot of confidence. So he cries out and says, rescue, O Lord. Like he uses the divine names as Yahweh. The, the, the self-existent one, rescue me, save me, help me. There's a, a bunch of different ways we could say that, but it's just, this happens in the Psalms a lot. You get this cry, you get this plea to the Lord. And then by the end of the Psalm, you get you, O Lord, you, Yahweh, the self-existent one, you will keep them. You will guard us. So you see this pattern in the, in the Psalms a lot. Cry out for help, confidence or peace. And, and I, think with the, I think with the psalm, each psalm that does that is sort of helping us move from one place to the other. Uh, the next, after Park Day, we're going to do Psalm 13. It's a, it's a super emotional psalm that, that sort of has the same pattern where multiple times he's like, how long, oh Lord, how long? But he ends saying that I will praise you. He ends with confidence. So in the psalms, we've got this cry for help all the way to confidence and we got a, a handful of things in between that are, that are honestly just trying to help us get from point A to point B. They're trying to help us go from crying out to the Lord and saying, Lord, rescue, save, help. And I think that's something that we can all sort of relate to. Uh, we live in a broken world, whether it's frustrating things, driving around downtown, um, all the way to the, the tragic and, and the more difficult uh, and the, the pain and, and the suffering that comes from, from things like death or, or conflict or um, just maybe even the consequences of, of our own sin and our own heart. And so I think all of us can sympathize with the psalmist and, and say, Lord, help. Like, what's going on here? Rescue me. What, what, what's, the, what's the purpose of this situation? Like, why am I here? Help me. And so what the psalmist is trying to do, he's trying to walk us through this psalm so that at the end of the day, we can say, you know what? Lord, you will rescue me. I have peace. I have confidence. You will guard me. And so in this particular psalm, I think one of the, one of the things sort of behind the scenes is it's asking us this question. At the end of the day, whose words whose word do you trust? Whose word do you trust? And as we look, we look at it and we want to answer that question and say, okay, well, whose word do I trust? I mean, it's kind of easy for us to say, okay, well, God's word, I trust God's word. You know, it's like the, the, the Sunday school answer. And it's like, well, when I'm suffering or when I'm dealing with something where I'm crying out to the Lord and I'm saying, why, God? Like, help me. What's the point of this? Rescue me. What is that word? What is the word that God is asking you to trust when you, when you cry out to him and say, rescue me? When you ask him and you say, help, Lord. When, when we're suffering or when we're frustrated or when we're in pain, how do we know what, what his word is to you? It's one thing to say, whose word do you trust? But how do we know in those situations where we need rescue what is the word for you that he's calling you to trust? 
And, and that's, a, that's a good question and a question I think we should wrestle with and a question I think the psalm is actually gonna get to and kind of give us an answer to that because we do wanna know when I need rescue, what is his word to you? What is he calling you to trust? How can I answer that question? Whose word do you trust if I don't know what the word is to you? And I think a good way to sort of figure that out is start with, you know, our, our series is called Christ in the Psalms. Start with Jesus. Maybe no surprise there. Start with Jesus. He, John calls him the word. Jesus is the word made flesh. So if we're gonna try to understand what God is calling us to trust, when we, when we want help and we want rescue, then we should start with Jesus because that's the clearest revelation of the word of God. The, the very person, flesh and blood, man who lived a life, died and rose again, he is the word of God. So I think when the Psalm, we're gonna just start with, where is Christ in the Psalm? We're gonna start with Jesus is the word. So let's see what we can learn about Jesus from this Psalm. And then from there, I think that's gonna help us say, okay, well, this is Jesus, this is his life, this is the perfect representation of God in the flesh. This is not just the one who died for us, but the perfect example, he's, he's transforming us. He's transforming all of us into his image. So if this is the word, then that helps me understand what is God's word to you. If I have a better grip on the word of God, Jesus himself, I'm gonna have a better understanding of what is God's word to you. So that's kind of where we're going. We're gonna, we're gonna look at Jesus, the word, then we're gonna say, okay, well, what is the word that God has for you that he's calling you to trust in so that you can go from crying out to God to confidence in God? So you go from crying out to God to confidence in God. So let's look at the, the first couple of verses and see, see if we can find Christ here in the Psalms. Um, the introduction is part, of, uh, is part of the inspired word, it says, to the choir master. It's not on the slides because we just didn't have that in, in there. But it says, to the choir master, according to the Shimonith, a psalm of David. We don't totally know what that means, but it is an indication of just uh, probably how the psalm was supposed to be sung. Um, so I feel like everyone that likes to lead worship should say that it, the inspired word of God has instructions for how to lead worship properly. Um, so we don't know exactly what that was, but he, he did, there was concern for like how we do the song. So it's a, just a little note there, but we do get, it does tell us that it's from David. So, so we know that this is a Psalm from David and we don't, a lot of these Psalms, we don't exactly know where in his life and we can kind of make guesses and stuff, but, but David went through a lot, um, both bad and good. So as he wrote this poetry, as he wrote these songs, he gives us sort of an expression of what's going on and we learn from that. And so he writes in the, in the first couple verses, David says, save, O Lord, rescue me, O Lord, help me, O Lord. And he expands and he says, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbors with the flattering lips and a double heart they speak. And double heart's just kind of a way to say they, they have, the motives that, that they have are, are mixed. They may be saying one thing, but they're actually, they're actually thinking something else in their heart. So David is painting this picture. It's sort of a depressing picture. It's pretty um, uh, all-encompassing. Sometimes when uh, I say something uh, to my wife, like, uh, you, you, know, you always make me do this. She's like, don't say always, you know, which that's probably like just comes from like marriage counseling type situations, you know, like 
not always, it's never always. And I'm like, all right, you know, you're right. <laughs> um, but he says right here, everyone. He's being pretty all-encompassing. Every single person. Everyone utters lies. And I think this is, this is a pattern. This is actually a pattern that helps us get to what, what is happening in Christ. And this isn't new to David. I, we could talk about Moses. We could talk about the prophets. Uh, I, one that came to mind, I thought of uh, this com- just, just the, the, how often this comes up in Scripture. Think of Hannah. How many people, if you know the story of Hannah, she couldn't have children. She, her, she was in a terrible, I say, we don't know a lot about the relationship, but her husband married someone else also. So you're sharing wives. That's already off to a wrong start. And the other wife was having children all over the place, and she wasn't. And, and in true husband fashion, even in this messed up situation, he's like, well, isn't, aren't I not enough? Like, no sympathy there no consideration. And she goes to the temple to worship and to pray to God. And, the, and uh, the, the, the high priest's sons are essentially like, like abusing their power in the most despicable ways. So she, she has no support at home. She has no support at church, so to speak, the, the temple situation. And then she's crying out to the Lord. And one of the, one of the high priests is like, man, you're kind of, aren't you, are you drunk? And she's, a, she's one of these believers in the pattern of, of Scripture that just feels alone, that, that, that's pleading with the Lord to work and just feels alone. Another one we could talk about, Noah, you know, whittled down to his family. You think he felt alone building an ark and it's never rain? Uh, Isaiah, we just went through the prophet Isaiah. God pulls Isaiah and says, hey, you need to say all these things to the people, but they're not gonna listen to you. They're not even gonna care. They're gonna reject everything you say. And then, so, so now we have David, who's in a very similar situation. And all of these things are ultimately pointing us to the only person in the history of the world that was truly alone. The only person in the history of God's revelation to us in scripture that could say with a straight face, Everyone has abandoned me. I'm the only righteous one. And everyone around me is lying and seeking to destroy me. And that's Jesus himself. This is, this is pointing us, this is a pattern that we see throughout scripture that's actually pointing us to Jesus, the word of God. And I wanna look at just an example from Luke 23. I'm just gonna read some of the story here because I feel like it's good to just See this. From the Gospels. I'm just gonna read 25 verses. And think about what David is saying. He says, everyone utters lies. They have a double heart. They have, they have motives that are not true. And they're surrounding him to destroy him. Chapter 23, verse one of Luke says, then the whole company of them arose and brought him, Jesus, before Pilate. And they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Now, if you know anything about the gospels, those are both utter lies and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, you have said so. 
Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, and I find no guilt in this man, but they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him, and they arrayed him in splendid clothing. He sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. Before, before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Like political enemies are now united because of the false accusations, the mocking, and the ridicule that Jesus went through. Verse 13, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together. Look at how comprehensive it is. They all cried out together. Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man whom had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And I want to lean into what verse 23 says. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed. Their voices prevailed. This is what happens in the psalm. He says, everyone utters lies to his neighbors. They're out, they're out to destroy him. This is pointing us towards Jesus, the word. This is helping us, helping us understand what's going on here. And I think the next couple of verses are fascinating in light of what Jesus is going through. He said he didn't speak. He didn't speak. And in and, and Mark, it says Pilate was greatly amazed. He was like in awe that these people were just accusing him of all these things and he, and he kept his mouth shut. And I think three and four tell us why. It says, may the Lord, this is back in Psalm 12, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? This is a, seems a little harsh at first. It's called an imprecatory prayer. Praying a curse on someone. To this day, I think one of my favorite Babylon Bee articles is where they sent a psalm on a greeting card, but they chose an imprecatory prayer for, instead of a more. So. But it's... it's we don't use those, you know, we're not, 
you know, when someone in, in praying this morning, no one, no one raised their hand and said, hey, I would like to pray a curse on this person over here. And it's not, it's not something that we think about. It's not something that we do. And, I, and here's where I feel like this is, this is sort of uh, why this is so, this is why Jesus could keep his mouth shut in a sense. This is why Jesus didn't defend himself. This is, this is why Jesus allowed others to, to get the upper hand with the, their voices and, and with their demands and with their desire to crucify him because of what is in verse three. It says, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips. Think about what he's saying. This is Jesus saying, I don't have to defend myself. This is just saying, I am comfortable that I'm obeying that heavenly father. I'm speaking his words and this is how the crowd is responding. I'm healing the sick. I'm loving my neighbor. I'm, I'm following God's law and I'm being put on a cross and I'm being asked to defend myself and I'm saying the Lord will do that. I'm saying the Lord is the one who will cut off all flattering lips. And it wasn't very long after the death and resurrection of Jesus that, that Jerusalem was utterly destroyed. Utterly destroyed. And I think this is teaching us, this is teaching about Jesus. He is the word. And it gives us a little insight into how he entrusted himself to God being the one who would bring wrath. He entrusted himself to God being the one who would defend him. And what happened? What happened when he entrusted himself to God? He got handed over. He ended up nailed to a cross. He suffered more. He wasn't vindicated. They lied about him and they nailed him to a cross. And you know what he said on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? And I think if we stopped there, we would say, why would we trust God's words? Why would we trust God's words? Psalm 22 is, is, starts with that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's another Psalm that's showing us what Jesus is going through on the cross. It's a Psalm that, echoes some of the things that are in Psalm 12 and verse eight. It says, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. They're mocking him. And it escalates in verse 11, just like in the previous Psalm. It says, be not far from me for trouble is near and there's none to help. When Jesus is on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's pointing us to the same Psalm that has the same pattern of like suffering that leads to confidence, that leads to glory, that leads to joy. And he's, he's in this situation where there's no one there to help. But it jumps to verse 21. In, in Psalm 22, he says, save me from the mouth of the lion. And then all of a sudden we have a past tense rescue here. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. As he quotes that Psalm on the cross, as he is there abandoned by his father, he knows that he has been rescued. 
He knows that God is working in these things. And the, and the rest of Psalm 22 is expanding on all the things that God has done. And we, and we know the rest of the story. Jesus had confidence in the rest of the story, in, the, in his resurrection, in the pouring out of the Spirit, in the building up of the church, and even the destruction of Jerusalem, and the fact that God would judge. Jesus had confidence in everything he could do so that we even nailed to the cross saying that he has been abandoned. He knew, he knew the rest of the story, knew the rest of the psalm. He had confidence knowing that God is gonna work and that God's words are pure words. And that's where he goes in the, re- in the rest of Psalm 12. Look at verse five. He says, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan. Think about that. Who is the poor and the needy in this situation? Jesus. He needs rescue. Everyone is surrounding him, looking to destroy him, and they do. Because the needy groan. He cried out on the cross to his Lord. I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. And it may look like, actually it may look like failure from a human perspective. If we take the life of Christ seriously, if we really understand that, that should be something we don't really look forward to emulating. We don't, we, we don't want to just share in his suffering. We don't want to just cry out to the Lord and have that end in, in, in suffering and death. That's why Paul says, if he hasn't been raised from the dead, we're the most to be pitied. This is like the worst religion. But he, he knows, that he knows. He says, I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Jesus is now sitting on the throne, ruling and reigning, in the presence of the Father. He's been given the Spirit. He's building his eternal kingdom. You could survey 10 people on the street and they may not even know who Pilate was. Jesus is building an eternal kingdom in the glory of the Father, drawing every person to himself. Look at what God used in his suffering. He has been placed in safety for which he longed. God did not abandon his soul. God raised him up, which is why he can say in verse six, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. And I think about that in light of what Christ was going through. Pilate said, fine, we'll crucify him. The people said, we want this other guy that was actually a murderer. These are people that he healed, people that he taught, people that he fed. His his disciples abandoned him. Think of all the words coming out of people's mouths that Jesus would be tempted to believe and the situation that he was in on the cross. And he says, the Lord's words are pure words. I know that I will be rescued. I know that I'll be rescued. His confidence in that. So that's, that's showing us Jesus. He is the word. So what does that have to do with you? Jesus is the word. So what's his word to you? How do we make sense of this? If Jesus is the word and we can look at his life 
as believers, we're being transformed more and more into the image of Christ. What is the word for you so that when you say, Lord, help, rescue me, save me, how can you go from that to confidence in any situation? How do you get from point A to point B when we're suffering today? It says, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. What are, what are those words? What is that word to you? And I spun about this a little bit, and then it was interesting to me, he quotes God right before that. If we're being made in the image of Christ, if, if that pattern of feeling alone, if that pattern of suffering that's all the way back to Noah, all the way through the prophets, here with David, ultimately with Christ, if God is transforming us into that, then we can trust that he's doing the same thing for us. And look at verse five. Go back to that. When does God act? When does God actually work? When does God rescue? It tells us right there. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, because we're poor and needy, I will now arise. Because we're poor and needy, I will now arise. He is telling you, if you are united to Christ, if you are being transformed into his image, because you have needs, because you are poor, because you need rescued, that's when he will arise. That's when he'll begin to work. That's when he'll draw you to himself. He's the word to you that we need to believe. The word to you that's so difficult to hang on to when we cry out to God is that God works because we're weak and needy. The word to you is that God works because you're weak and needy. That's when he works. That's when he draws you to himself. That's when he reveals his glory and comforts you because you're weak and needy. And I think about that and I'm like, I wanna resist that on every front. I don't like being weak and needy. I'd rather handle things myself. I wanna trust in the things I have to say and the actions that I can do. And this idea that God works when we're weak and when we're needy is all throughout scripture. It says in Matthew, Matthew 5, on the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, he's saying the same thing. He starts off this way. He hope Jesus, this is Jesus speaking to us. He's saying the same thing the psalmist is saying. God works because you're weak and needy. He opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is where God works. This is where God draws himself to you. It's not for the strong. It's not for the capable. It's not for the confident. It's for the weak and for the needy. 
If you're weak and you're needy, that's where God will work. That's where God will reveal himself to you. Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians. I think this is just a truth we don't really like a whole lot. Um, so I want to emphasize it from a couple of different places. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9. This is Paul talking to the church after Christ's teaching. We're, we're looking at the Psalms. We're looking at the, what Jesus said in the gospel. And then Paul says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Talk about weak and needy. Why? It says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God brought them to a place where they recognized they were weak and needy to the point of death so that they could not rely on their own ability. They could rely on God himself. Last one, we'll look at 2 Timothy. Second Timothy four sixteen. He's talking to someone he's served with for a long time. Someone he he's passing off a, a pastorate to Timothy. He calls him his child in the faith. And he says, "At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me." Here's Paul feeling what Jesus felt, what we feel what the psalmist felt, what believers at all time has felt. He says, may it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue. This is the same pattern in the Psalms. Look what he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. I think this is a really difficult thing for us to wrestle with. For me, maybe it's just me. I don't like to feel weak and needy. I don't like to be desperate for help. But God is saying you are. That's why Jesus stepped into the world to be needy because so often we refuse to admit that we are. Jesus shut his mouth when he was being accused because so often we open ours. And he's saying, do you wanna be, do you wanna be drawn into the Father? Do you wanna be transformed like me so that you have my joy when you're suffering in this world? Do you wanna say with confidence, God will rescue me? Then admit that you're weak and needy. Confess that you can't handle it, that it's too much for you. And as soon as we get out of the way, we begin to see God really working. We begin to see God really working. So why do we avoid that then? If we believe that, if the psalmist is saying, how do I get from point A to point B where I'm crying out for help and I'm confident in the Lord? And the psalmist is saying, do you trust God's word? Look at Christ himself do you trust God's word that I work, I rise up 
and rescue you, reveal myself to you, encourage you when you're weak and when you're needy. Do we believe that? The, the beauty of these things is Jesus says he was comforted. He says that he had joy. He's, he was a man of peace, even though he was a man of sorrows. The beauty of these things is when we, when, we, when we realize this and we turn to the Lord and we cry out to him and say, Lord, save. We see him work. We're encouraged. We understand more and more the beauty of the gospel. And we're drawn closer and closer to our heavenly father. I really like this quote from Calvin um, on this psalm. He said, we ought to be fully persuaded of this. Fully persuaded. And I read this in the intro and I was like, I don't, where is he going with this? Um, But I thought it was an excellent summary of what's saying here. So we should be fully persuaded of this, that the greater the confusion of things in the world is, God is so much readier to aid and succor his people, which is just an old way of saying rescue, to run after, to help. We should be fully persuaded of this. The, the greater the confusions of the things of the world is, God is so much the readier to aid and succor his people. And that it is in, then, in this, and that it is then the most proper season for him to interpose his assistance. That's the most proper season for God to draw near to you. That's wonderful. How many confusing, weak, and difficult things do we just avoid because we just don't want to have to wrestle with that? That's what we, it's easy. But it's in those moments where God wants to draw himself to you. When you're, when, you're, when you're confused, when you're struggling, when you need rescue, that's when we cry out to God and that's actually the best time for God to comfort you and to reveal his presence to you and to transform you and to make it so that at the end of the psalm, you can say what the psalmist says, you, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. And not just in a little tiny difficult thing, he says, on every side the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of men. Jesus is the only one that's had to deal with that in its fullness. But he could say, you will rescue me. So if we believe that God actually works in our suffering and our weakness and we turn to him and we cry out to him and that's the time where, where he wants to work, where he wants to reveal himself to you, we can go from rescue me, O Lord, to you will do this. You will do this because I've watched you do it again and again because I'm needy, I'm weak, and I turn to you and you love me and you care for me and you've given your son for me. Thanks be to God for such an unspeakable gift. A God who works in our weakness. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for demonstrating this in your son. He made himself weak because we pretend we're strong. Lord, I pray that you would let us see that and be impressed with him. Help us see that and know that that's the path to true glory. 
Lord, I thank you for when you do encourage us. I thank you for when we, we come to you and we acknowledge our weakness and, and you comfort and you, you give us confidence in your word and we can, we can say that your words are pure and I don't, I don't care what I said or what I see around me, I have confidence in what you've said. Use your spirit to give us more of that confidence. Use your spirit to, to help us see more of you. Use your spirit to convince us to trust you that you work in our we- you work because of our weakness. Help us trust you with that so we can enjoy you more. In your name I pray, amen.